This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about telling difficult stories, and my guest is Jamie Pennebaker from the University of Texas in Austin. Professor Pennebaker is the Regent Centennial Professor of Liberal Arts. He's the chair of the Department of Psychology at the University of Texas. He's the author of nine books that explore the themes of secrecy, language, and health. An early book, Opening Up, The Healing Power of Expressing Emotions, explored the power of confiding in others to improve our physical health. His most recent book, The Secret Life of Pronouns, explores the way that we reveal ourselves in the very words that we use, even without knowing it. Welcome to Safe Space, Jamie. Thank you. It's good to be here. You begin the book opening up with this fascinating story of a bank vice president going through a lie detector test and ultimately being induced to confess to a crime that led to his immediate imprisonment. And you describe this kind of fascinating moment where he's actually grateful to the lie detector technician who essentially became his confessor. And I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit more about that story and how it captivated your interest. The issue is is that very often when someone's a suspect in a crime, they are, especially if it's a big crime, they're called in to uh, undergo a polygraph exam. In the, the example I used in the book, uh, what happens is this was a, a banker and uh, a sizable amount of money had been stolen from the bank through embezzlement. And what happens is the press or the FBI won't release a lot of the details of the crime, figuring that the only person who knows about these details is the person who actually did it. And they're asked a series of questions. And the, the person is asked about facts of, do they know about this? And, and some things they're asked about, only the criminal would know. Now, at the end, the polygrapher would go over the polygraph record because you can see the, you know, all the, the squiggles from the, the machine there. And the polygrapher said, you know, Joe, everything you told me seems to be true except this one place where you answered and the machine seems to think that you're lying. What do you think's going on? Now, this technique is fascinating just in and of itself because the person now is now trying to tell the machine why – they seem to think it's lot why they why it looks as though the person's lying, and this is how the polygraph often works: is the person now starts telling information that will jeopardize them, and they consequently are often caught in additional lies. And once this house of cards is gets too high, the polygrapher is able to point out this, and the person very frequently confesses. Now, what's interesting is after they confess. They are then taken to a room, they write out a confession, and then they have to take a second polygraph exam. And what they often find is that the second time they do it, the, the people are biologically relaxed. Their heart rate's lower, their blood pressure's lower. It's almost as though once they have gotten this burden off of them, they're much more relaxed. And the, what I've loved were these stories where frequently they afterwards they get up and they warmly shake the polygrapher's hand, thanking them for it. And many of the polygraphers tell me that they get Christmas cards from people who they have sent to prison. So it's this powerful 
phenomenon when individuals disclose or confess something that they've been holding back it's a huge relief for them and what does that tell you i mean it makes intuitive sense i think that people would feel relief when they finally are able to confess something but it was really striking to me that here's this guy going to prison as a result of this confession but his overwhelming response to the polygraph guy was gratitude was really gratitude and what does that tell you about the need to confess what it tells me is two things one is is the tremendous stress there is on all of us when we're having to hold back big secrets from people close to us and that's been a part of the research I've done for years, showing that when people have some kind of major upheaval that they keep secret from others, it increases the stress that they're under. It makes them sleep more poorly. They have more health problems. They tend to drink too much. They smoke too much. They stop exercising. It is a horrible burden on the person. And when given the opportunity to to disclose or confess, even if it's just writing it down, uh, that helps people to get through this trauma. It helps them to get through the deceptions that they and the de- de- deceptive lives they've been leading. You you refer to another study that really was a pathbreaking study, looking at how when adults report a history of childhood trauma, that even regardless maybe of the nature of that trauma, if they had not confided it to anyone. They tend to do to do far poorly, far more poorly years later than if they had been able to tell someone about it. I wondered if you could say more about that study. This is a, a, a study that we really just stumbled into, and it was one of these findings that really changed the trajectory of my career. We were doing a big project on physical symptoms and just to find out who reports physical symptoms, headaches, upset stomachs, at, and things like that at high rates. And we decided to create a giant questionnaire and just ask people everything we could think of about their lives. And we put on this one question, which was, prior to the age of 17, did you have a traumatic sexual experience? And we passed this questionnaire out to hundreds of people. And then later uh, worked with the magazine Psychology Today, where we got uh, 24,000 people who filled out a, a questionnaire that answered that question. And what we discovered was that people who had had a traumatic sexual experience were three times more likely to have been hospitalized for any reason in the previous year compared to those who hadn't. And they had every health problem imaginable, higher rates of cancer and and high blood pressure and ulcers and colds and flus and all sorts of things. What I was interested in was, first of all, just the base rate. 22% of women and 11% of men reported having had a traumatic sexual experience. And then as we started to interview people, the thing that separated a traumatic sexual experience from others was that very few people had ever talked in detail with anybody about it. And that raises this next question. Is the problem a traumatic sexual experience, or is it having any kind of upsetting experience that you keep secret? And that seems to be the issue. Any major upheaval a person has that they keep secret from others, from their close friends, seems to put them at just higher levels of stress, higher at, at higher risk for health problems. And it makes sense. Think about the person who's had some kind of traumatic 
experience that they're keeping secret from others. They now have to kind of monitor themselves. They're looking around. They don't want this to, to leak out in some ways. They start to have relationships that are more superficial because if I have this big secret and I get close to you, I will be tempted to tell you about this secret. So you can start to see how having this big, painful secret can be so damaging to a person's psychological and even physical health. Yes, I mean, you're describing it along the dimensions of how it affects people's relationships. But I'm also imagining, you know, how it affects a relationship to yourself. I mean, in, in terms of shame, say, or, you know, but starting to tell yourself, uh, make meaning of the experience as if it was your fault, or, you know, it can become distorted in the context of that isolation. And there's another side to this as well. One thing that talking to other people about an event does is it translates the experience into language. It forces it to be organized in a different way. And when you're keeping a secret, it's too complex to organize in your mind. So you'll think about some little feature and you'll feel guilty or shameful or you'll feel one thing or another. Then another part will appear in your mind and you'll be angry. But you don't put it all together. One thing that's a hallmark of a of a traumatic experience is it touches every part of our lives. It touches our relationships with others. It touches our performance at work, our uh, health behaviors, our just everything. And this is the beauty of language: is it helps us to organize really complex events. There's some really interesting work going on now that when individuals merely label an emotional experience, that is, put it into words. It changes the way it's represented in the brain. From an experiential level, if I'm feeling something and then I say, this is what I'm feeling, if I put a name on it, I'm a little bit disidentified with the thing itself. I'm now reflecting on it. So I'm in an observer relationship to myself in a new way. And you're saying that that is perhaps helpful. It is. And, you know, I always find it so interesting because we do these studies. We've done dozens of studies where we bring people in and we have them write about a traumatic experience. And very often people will say, I was so dreading doing this, and now that I have put it down, I realize it's not that big a deal. It it kind of forces a different perspective once it's put into words. Yeah, so you write about that, and I'd like to hear more about that different perspective. I know that you sometimes suggest to people, again, this is outside of a study, but more almost therapeutically, that they... Right, for three or four days consecutively, for 15 minutes at a time, about what might be the most emotionally upsetting experience that they're thinking about now. And, and, you, and then I know you analyze the language and to look for that change in perspective. Could you say more about that? Writing is a really simple thing. We had people write for four days, 20 minutes, 20 minutes a time. And I should say that that first study came out in the 80s, and there have now been over 200 studies published using this method by labs all over the world. And the way people are asked to write varies a lot. It doesn't have to be 20 minutes a day. It can be 10 minutes a day. It can be uh, 15 minutes. It doesn't have to be four consecutive days. It could be three days. It could even be writing multiple times in one day. But no matter what method a person uses, what I recommend is to set aside some time where where you would be alone, where you're not going to be bothered, and promise yourself that you'll write at least, say, 15 minutes on at least three or four occasions. And in it, 
to explore your thoughts and feelings about this upsetting experience. And th- this method is for you and you only. In other words, this should not be some kind of blog. This should not be a letter you're sending to somebody else. This should be just for you and you alone. And plan to throw it away. Whether you do or not, it doesn't matter. But the idea is is uh, if this is something that could be damaging to you or somebody else if it were discovered, you've got to be really careful with it. But the really bottom line is to be honest with yourself and simply set aside this amount of time. And what do you find when people do that? What, across all of these studies, the effects are really quite striking. Uh, our early research focused prim- primarily on physical health. So we found that after people were asked to write about these emotional upheavals, they went to the doctor at rates at rates that are about half the rates of people in our control conditions. Other studies find that people sleep better. Later studies by us and others drew blood before they were assigned a condition after the last day of writing and several weeks later, and we found significant changes in immune function. Other studies have looked at changes in blood pressure. It, it's a really impressive group of health changes. And in fact, there's some nice work going on in, in Europe right now looking at this, this writing method and its links to wound healing. So both people who are undergoing elective surgery or people who have been given experimental wounds, you find that over several days that wounds heal faster if people write beforehand. Uh, there's also some really interesting cognitive changes. One of the problems is if a person is grappling with major upheavals, they're thinking about them all the time. Their their mind is kind of full of it, which means they, they it's hard for them to focus well on other topics. They might be forgetful. They're just not as attentive. When people write about emotional upheavals, various studies have now shown that people have better what's called working memory, which is they're able to think better. They make better grades in school. They simply focus better. There have also been some very interesting changes, reductions in depression, reductions in other markers of distress. And the things that I've been most interested in is that after people write about upsetting experiences, their social lives start to change. I think they become better friends. They can listen to other people better. They become more socially connected to others. I do want to note one thing. If you look across all of these studies, the effects are modest. Don't expect your life to be completely transformed, and it's a method that works more than it doesn't. But So it's not some kind of panacea, but it is remarkably successful, and it's, it's cheap and it's fast. My understanding from reading your work is that you began to identify who was more likely to benefit from this. And that people who really did explore their emotional experience as well as their cognitive experience tended to do better. And that people who over time began to think about the same event from a variety of different perspectives tended to do better. This is where I've I've actually been spending much of my time for the last few years, which is trying to identify healthy writing. Are there certain ways of writing that are better than others? And that's led me into this world of language and how the words we use in everyday life reflect who we are. And by using computerized analyses of people's writing, what we're finding is is 
just what you're suggesting. The more that people are able to kind of psychologically distance themselves from what they're writing, uh, the more they can kind of change perspectives and understand not only how what was going on in their lives, but also the lives of others when this is happening. And then also people who are able over the days of writing, if they're able to change in the way they're thinking, if they're able to almost construct a story or a narrative about what happened, the more they benefit. In other words, if a person starts writing and they tell the same story over and over again and it doesn't change, writing probably is not going to be beneficial. But if they can write about it and then stand back and look at it from kind of a broader perspective and start to put together a narrative where there's a clear beginning, middle, and end, those are the people who seem to benefit the most. And do you ever assign that? Do you ever say, you know, by the fourth day, try to retell it in a different way or try to tell it as a story with a beginning and ending? This is something we have been trying for the last uh, two or three years. Our success rate has been modest. Are there any risks involved? Because, you know, for me as a therapist working with people who've had traumas, Sometimes part of what I'm assessing for is, will something be re-traumatizing to go back into it? Uh, will it trigger more drinking to kind of relive it again? I wonder if you've seen uh, occasions when people actually did worse afterwards. It is very rare for us to see uh, that a person does worse. In fact, uh, that just typically never happens. But we put in a particular safeguard. And this, I call this the uh, the flip-out rule, re reflect the fact that I grew up in the 60s. And that is when people are, in the, are doing our projects, I make it clear that I don't want them to flip out. And I see them in front of me. They seem to be completely normal. But if they feel as they're going to go crazy, if they're going to feel as though they're going to lose control, then stop writing. Write about something else. The fact is, is that people are responsible for themselves, and if you understand that this might, be, you might be pushing yourself too hard, pull back. And once I've started instituting that flip-out rule, I haven't had problems. I'm curious to know when someone's done this and has had a chance to, to tell the secret for the first time to the paper or to the computer screen, as it were. Does that end up affecting their ability to tell the story to the people that are important to them? I work with so many people who really have a deep longing to tell their story to a particular person, someone I might call the intended listener, and they struggle so much because they're not sure that person wants to hear it or can hear it or is willing to hear it. And I'd love to know if writing it out first alone, if in your experience that has helped people tell it to the people that they most long to hear it. What I frequently found is when people write it down first, and of course this is part of an experiment, very often they will say that it made it a much more understandable, simple, or less complicated experience. Some of them reports that afterwards didn't feel that they needed to talk to the other person as much as they thought they did. And some people actually ended up talking to other people. I'm reminded of one study that we did with Holocaust survivors. One thing that was interesting is that the Holocaust community, that group actually didn't talk to one another very much. Before this, we gave questionnaires to, 
to the survivors, asking how much they had talked to other people, how many people in their family they had talked about their Holocaust experiences. And surprisingly to me, very few had talked about it much at all. They then came in and did a really deep disclosure. This wasn't written. This was done in a television uh, setting, so it was uh, it was videotaped. Afterwards, the average person, after they had done this, the, the average person showed it to about five or six different people in the next month, and they talked to at least that many people, if not more. In other words, putting it into words really made it simpler for them to now start telling other people about it. And I think that's one of the issues is people don't talk about it because they're just so afraid it's going to shake their entire world, even though it's years and years afterwards. Putting it into words first helps the person just to gauge how big a deal it is. I'm interested in, in pursuing what you're talking about now, about what I call the forces of silence, the forces that keep people from telling the stories. And, you know, as I'm listening to you thinking about these Holocaust survivors, I can imagine also not wanting to hurt the listener. I mean, that these stories are so horrific and just devastating that, you know, not wanting to burden your own family members with imagining it or being putting those images in people's mind. And I wondered if people spoke of that to you. That's a really, that's a a really great question, and um, that has not been something that people have talked to me much about. Uh, but that, and you're right. I think that is something that people are worried about, and one reason they don't talk about it. I, I'm thinking of another force of silence that um, I hear about every day in my office as a clinician, where people come in and they're d- working through something that was very painful from the past, and they have such an internal pressure to move on, you know, to just buck up, pick up your boot, you know, yourself by your bootstraps and move forward and not look at the past. And it feels like almost a very American kind of cultural value that we're future oriented, we're positive, we, you know, positive thinking, and that to dwell on the past is somehow in itself uh, a sign of weakness. And I'm curious to know if you hear about that and what your own sense of that is. That's an an interesting problem, I think. Uh, I see this a lot with the kinds of uh, peoples that I study. You know, people who have been diagnosed with um, breast or prostate cancer or people or any kind of cancer, people who have been a victim of a crime or God knows what, uh, people whose spouses have died suddenly. In all these cases, uh, very often people's close friends really get become very supportive immediately afterwards. But about two to three weeks afterwards, their friends basically say, okay, time to move on. So after not very long, people want people to just get over it. And what happens is people who've been traumatized get double dosed. Not only do they have some traumatic experience, but after three or four weeks, their friends don't want to hear about it anymore. And this is where I think psychotherapy is beneficial and also where writing is really beneficial because in a sense you're not burdening your social network as much and at the same time you are helping to work through the event. I do often hear that this is such a, that often the pain of the silence following a trauma can be worse than the trauma itself. And I wonder if you could say more about how, how you understand that. You know, it's, 
I, I've seen this in so many different ways. There's been some research, for example, among people who have had uh, were victims of incest. So, kind of the the standard story, but there's so many variations. Is a a, a young girl who might be ten or eleven who is molested by a stepfather. The the girl then tells the mother, and the mother blames the kid. And the research suggests that when that happens, that's worse than if the kid had just kept it a secret. In other words, having your story not validated is particularly threatening. And there have been some other laboratory studies showing a similar kind of thing. So part of this is when people are uh, question your story. So that's that's without question the worst. But you also see it in just day-to-day life when a person is diagnosed with a disease, other people avoiding avoiding you, in, in essence, not validating you or validating your experience. I think that's a, a, a really horrible psychological burden that people have to deal with, which is this sense of shame and guilt and this sense of nobody understands me, and it isolates us. And this is what's so striking about a traumatic experience is how it isolates us in this really peculiar way that I don't think many people would ever understand unless they had this trauma. I know that you're engaged in a, in a new and ongoing study right now where you're looking at people's people who have a current secret and how it shapes their emails to their friends. And I'm curious, are you? is that study to look at this very issue of how isolating it is to hold on to a secret? What we're trying to do is we are looking at how people correspond with others in, via their email uh, when they've had a major secret. Now, this study isn't for everyone. You know, you'd have to have Gmail, and you also have to be trusting enough to let us analyze your email. But what we're trying to find out is if a person have some, has had some kind of upheaval, how do they change in the way they start connecting with others? Do they Does their email change when they're dealing with friends who know about it versus don't know about it. How does a person's personality change? How does a person, do they start avoiding everyone? In other words, how how do we do our social lives um, adapt to a major upheaval? We're going to have to end in a minute. I want to close with one question about your current book, The Secret Life of Pronouns, which is this fascinating analysis of the kind of small connector function words in people's speech and what they reveal. One of the things that you explore is the ways in which partners or husbands and wives can express themselves in similar or different ways and ways in which your approach to analyzing language can reveal the ways in which people connect. And I'd love to hear you explain that. We've started getting into this the relationships in some ways that have been astounding to me. The first thing we started looking at were, were speed dates, just to find out, can we predict if two people will eventually go out, out on a date after they've gone through speed dating? Speed dating, as you probably know, is you get maybe in a heterosexual one, you might get 10 men, 10 women. They come to a, to a particular location. Each one talks to everybody uh, for five minutes. Well, we analyzed some speed dating where we tape recorded their their date, and then uh, the next day they make decisions about who they want to go out with. 
Well, we analyze their language, and we can look at how similar the two people in their speed date are using words, especially these words like pronouns and prepositions and so forth. And the more similar they are in their use of language, that we say that they have higher language style matching. What we find is that we can predict if they're going to go out on a date better than they can. Mm-hmm. That is, the more similar they are in their use of these, these style linguistic style markers, the more likely they are to go out on a date. So that was our first project. Jamie, yeah. you could make millions devising a new Match.com where people just record themselves speaking, <laughs> exactly. and you could match people. Exactly. I think this exactly. is a whole other career for you. <laughs> and then the other one was we started looking at young dating couples. Now, these are our freshman college students who used instant messaging, IMing with each other. And to be in the study, they had to let us analyze their IMs for 10 days. And we gave them all these questionnaires. How good is your relationship? How much do you love the other person? How much do you want to be with them in the future? You know, everything. And then we just tracked them over the next several months. Again, we predicted who'd be together at much higher rates than they did. And the way we did it was the more that they their language matched during those IMs, the more likely they were to be together three months later. And what about the old adage that opposites attract? That uh, turns out it's not true when it comes to language. I guess not. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> Jamie, on that note, I'm going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe you Space bet. Radio. This is Dr. Ann speaking on WMPG on Safe Space Radio. I've been speaking with Jamie Pennebaker about his work studying for decades the interrelationships between telling secrets, revealing secrets, our language, and our physical health. Coming up next is Covering the Bases with Thaddeus.